Well, great. Well, good morning, Sanlow, and good morning, Walnut Creek. Uh, it's good to worship with you guys this morning, and uh, uh, I just want to say what a privilege it is to be, he- to be here with you guys this morning, and I'm so honored that you guys would invite me back home, even though you guys saw me as a child. <laughs> um, but um, if you have your Bibles, and I encourage you to bring them, uh, please open with me to Judges 17, Judges 17. And as you're turning there, I just want to say again, thank you for welcoming me back home. I'm, I mean, just so warmly over the, this past month, uh, the love displayed through all the messages, um, cards, gifts, and conversations have been such a grace to me, especially as I continue adjusting living back in Northern California after four and a half years. Uh, and this might sound a little simple, but I've actually forgotten how cold the nights can get here. Uh, and that's why I'm wearing a jacket right now. <laughs> Uh, I've been living in L.A., uh, you know, you could wear shorts, shirt, and a sandals like, out in the beginning of January at nighttime and be fine, but, and it's like 65 out, but it turns 64 degrees here, and I'm like, I'm shivering. <laughs> so, uh, I'll admit it, I've gotten soft, for sure. L.A. has made me soft. Um, and as you continue to turn in your Bibles, I also want to say this morning, we have the honor of celebrating our veterans here with us uh, to celebrate Veterans Day. And it's because of men and women like them that have served our country so faithfully that we even get to have uh, the many privileges that we do today, such as worshiping our God freely together publicly in this space like we are right now. Uh, So thank you. Thank you so much, veterans. And we'll have a special time to honor you later on in our worship service. So right now, uh, we're going to read through Judges 17, and later on in the message, we'll go through the rest— yeah, and later on we'll go into, into chapter 18. And I think it's important, at least though, for now, to hear at least part of this story out loud because um, not just for the sake of doing it, but because God's word gives life and his spirit speaks through it to us today even now. So if you're able, please follow along with me in Judges 17. Judges 17, I'll, I will be reading from the ESV. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord, and restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith, who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man, Micah, had a shrine. And he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Continuing on in verse 7, Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, 
Stay with me and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. As priest. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your grace to us as we reveal through your son's work in the gospel. Lord, just as we've repeatedly seen in Israel's brokenness and unfaithfulness over and over again to you these past few weeks during our study in Judges, we confess we're no different than them. Please, Father, have mercy on us and speak to us through your word this morning with grace and truth and create in us open and receptive hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So that verse, verse six, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. As I'm sure you've noticed, this verse has been one of the biggest reoccurring themes in the book of Judges, that everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Uh, they were worshiping pagan gods, self-made wooden and metal idols, the kinds of things you would imagine today in foreign countries where they don't know Jesus. And you're probably sitting there thinking, you don't worship anything like that. Uh, no thoughts running across your mind like, did I make any cool wooden idols this week? Or did I forget to bow to my metal image before picking up my kids and getting my groceries? You know, nothing like that, right? No, these are things that probably didn't cross your mind. On the other hand, I would still argue that there are things in our lives we worship that aren't carved or metal objects, but things that we make bigger than God and foreign ideas that we allow to merge with our understanding of who God is. For example, something that some people might still do these days, maybe, maybe you don't, I, I don't know how many people do, horoscopes, uh, you can look up in the paper or go online in the morning and read your free horoscope for the day, and it'll say something like, something good will happen to you today. Uh, so later on when you're in the dentist's office and they tell you you have a cavity, well, at least you got a free toothbrush, right? That's something that's good. I would say a, a good steak is better. Um, but, um, you know, that's just one way of living life. And now you might not do horoscopes. Um, however, more often than not, we make God into a horoscope. We make him into some sort of genie. Lord, if you just give me this one thing, I'll worship you more. God, thank you for forgiving me of all of my sins. Now I'm going to take advantage of your mercy some more and continue sinning. Father, I love you more than anyone or anything else, but what's happening in the climate of today's culture is going to inform my decision-making and worldview more than you. We, may, we might not say these things out loud or think them blatantly, but sadly so often we live these ways implicitly. Not because God is the one leading us, but because we are the ones leading ourselves. We manufacture our own personal religions dictated by our wants, our wants, instead of realizing that God has given us everything we could ever need already. And that leads us to our key idea this morning. Our ways are manufactured religion while God's way is our only hope. Our ways are manufactured religion while God's way is our only hope. 
So if you're following along in the handout that's at the top of the page. So the big question for us now is that we have to ask ourselves, how are we manufacturing our own religion? How are we making our own false gods and idols in our own lives? We have nothing wooden or made of metal, I would assume, but what are we bowing to that takes precedent over the Lord? And that brings us to our first point. Too often we choose to do what's right in our own eyes. And that's that space right there in the first point. Too often we choose to do what's right in our own eyes. We make our own false gods and idols by doing what is right to us. Look at me, or look with me at verses one through six again. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears. Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah and the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So here we see Micah and his mother choosing to do what is right in their own eyes. So for starters, we meet the Israelite Micah. Okay? This guy walks onto the scene. Uh, and the first thing that we learn about him is that he's a thief. What's ironic is that his name translates to who is like Yahweh. When names would typically, and this is, a, this is a point in time when, when names would typically refer uh, or reflect the character of the person whom they are named. But it's very clear here that Micah is not a faithful guy because he's already seen here in just the opening verses already violating God's covenant with Israel by stealing for one, one of the great commandments, and two, he's showing contempt for his mother. Then we learn that the amount Micah steals from his mother is 1,100 silver shekels, which is about 27 and a half pounds of silver. And what's crazy is you might remember that this is the same amount of money that each of the Philistine governors had given to Delilah as a reward for delivering Samson over to them. So this is like royal reward type of money. It's like big money, right? But it's only once Micah hears his mother's curse, only once then, the, the curse that curses the thief, that he decided to return the money. Not because he felt guilty or had a change of heart, but that he feared the curse itself. And that was because curses back then were taken very seriously. So what do we know about this guy, Micah? So far, one, he's a thief. Two, he's a bad son. Right? And three, <laughs> building upon, I mean, just all this trouble. Numer he's just looking out for himself. Numero uno. Not his mom, because he, was, he wasn't thinking about returning the money until he heard that curse. And then we meet Micah's mom. At first glance, it seems like Micah's mom is a pious woman. She forgives her son for stealing from her, not simply forgiving him, but even pronouncing a blessing for him by the Lord. So she's inviting her son not just to be blessed, but blessed by the God of Israel. So, 
seemingly all good things about her so far, right? I mean, this all like, sounds kind of good. But what gets a little confusing then is what she does with the silver. She decides to dedicate the silver to the Lord, but instead gives it to, uh, you, you know, but instead, um, and she dedicates the silver to the Lord when, uh, and when you, usually when you did something that, like that, you would give the money to the priests, right, of Israel. But she instead, one, decides to keep it, and two, she has portions of it made into physical images and idols. So though she emphatically dedicates the silver to Yahweh, she's made it into cult objects. But that's only with 200 of the original 1,100. Which begs the question then, what did she do with the rest of the silver that was supposed to be for the Lord? Her intention of turning the silver into images strongly goes against the second commandment that she would have known, that she would have known as an Israelite that she wasn't to make any physical images of gods. And this is a flagrant foul, violating God's law. In the same scene, her son violates God's commandments to not steal and failing to honor his parents, his mother. So both Micah and his mother they did what was right in their own eyes. How ironic is it that though they're both Israelites and called to be God's people, living in accordance with his word, they intentionally and purposefully fly in direct opposition of who God is over and over. And what's sad is they don't realize the inconsistencies with the Jewish faith that they were supposed to have with their own made-up Micah goes on building idolatry with the building of a shrine, something he shouldn't have made outside of God's temp, uh, prescribed holy temple, uh, making an ephod, uh, which is an instrument uh, for divination that was uh, syncretistic, mixing foreign religion with God, building household gods, violating the second commandment again, and ordaining one of his sons to be a priest, something that was supposed to only be reserved for the priestly Israelite tribe of Levi. What heightens the irony, again, is that all of this idol worship was happening near the official, legitimate house of God's worship in nearby Shiloh. Essentially, though Michael's religion is focused on Yahweh, it's no different than the pagan ones surrounding him in neighboring countries. Which brings us back to that reoccurring theme verse. In those days, there was no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The author himself confirms not just for Micah and his mother doing wrong, but all of Israel, all of Israel doing what was right in their own eyes. So while we know of the kingly failures that come later on in the Old Testament, Micah's story shows us that Israel did not need an earthly king to lead them into sin because they were more than capable of doing it themselves. There is no physical king but more importantly, it's clear that there is no spiritual king. And we too are like Micah, his mother and all of Israel. But how? You and I might not think uh, that we don't, we, we don't have any man-made idols lying around the house, uh, but we live as if we have no spiritual king. We live our lives just like the Israelites, Micahs and Micah moms of their time. We believe we know the king, but take and borrow from the world around us and mix it up, all up together and make up our own personal smorgasbord of religion. 
In his book, Knowledge of the Holy, author A.W. Tozer says this line that's all too true. The idolater simply imagines things about God and acts as if they were true. We're extremely capable of coming up with our own idols just as Micah. Worshiping what's convenient out of what's comfortable to us instead of worshiping the true semblance of who God truly is. Security, sex, human wisdom, new job titles, personal happiness, school, even family, each of these things in and of themselves are not outright sinful nor idols, but when they lose their proper place before God, they become our personal man-made gods that make God an afterthought. And family might sound like an odd one at first. You know, clearly, uh, family is generally a good thing. Scripture always describes children as blessings, and they are. And I'm not arguing you guys to not love your, your families. Please love your families. Okay. Um, but as Christians, we're not called to love our families first over everything else. And that's because we're for, as Christians, we're called to love the Lord first over everything else. It's not that you can't love both at the same time, and you should. I would definitely encourage you to do that. But looking at how you plan your calendars, how you budget your expenses, are you able to say that it's God who informs your family decisions, or is it your family that dictates your God decisions? Security is another one that we, we, we tend to make into a religion, just like family, and that could be job security, financial security, the peace of mind that comes with knowing that all of your ducks are in a row. If God called you to a lesser-paying job tomorrow or called you to live in a foreign country for the sake of the gospel, knowing that in one sense your life would be turned upside down, both cases taking away different senses of security, in your heart of hearts, right now, in this moment that we have together, could you honestly answer yes to either of those questions? Many places in the world today, especially here in the Bay Area, it's unpopular to be Christian. Um, culture paints us in a negative light, making us out to be ignorant or just plain fools for one, believing in God, and or two, believing in the Bible. So I ask you all now, are we letting the values of society dictate how we live instead of allowing God's word to guide us? Are we worshiping the status quo, making culture into a religion even, living according to the culture's standards, muddying our thinking and our decision-making, or are we heeding God's word? Take a moment now to consider these things honestly and truthfully to yourself. And I don't share these things now just to guilt trip you or to make you, make you feel bad. Not at all, that's the furthest thing from the truth. In fact, these are questions that I must ask myself too. But as a church, we want to preach through the whole counsel of God truthfully and allow it to work in our hearts to take honest evaluations of what we're really worshiping, believers and unbelievers alike here this morning. So why is it that we do what we think is right? Why do we try and, 
and uh, do what's right in our own eyes instead of trying to do what's right in God's eyes? Why do we create personal man-made gods and allow them to rule our lives over and over again? And that brings us to our second point. We convince ourselves that our wants are God's wants. We convince ourselves that our wants are God's wants. And you could fill in the second blank space there. Doing what's right in our own eyes is not so much about worshiping other gods, but about worshiping God in the wrong way, like Micah here. So please read with me verses 7 to 13. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem and Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem and Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem and Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may find, peace, uh, find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me. And be to me a father and a priest, and I will give, to you, give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes in your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, because I have a Levite as a priest. And what we see here in verses 7 to 13 is Micah convincing himself that his wants are God's wants. He believes God will bless him now that he has his man-made syncretistic worship all set up and that he's got a Levite as a priest. So again, look, look at our verses. We see this young Levite traveling from Bethlehem, traveling around, trying to find a place to settle down. And what ends up happening is he meets Micah, and Micah offers him a job as a priest with pay. It's a pretty sweet deal. Uh, you might know from elsewhere in Scripture that Levites are the only God-ordained tribe of Israel that were allowed to become priests. So though the young man is, in a way, living up to the calling he has to be a priest... This is still strange. It's a little weird. Being a Levite, he would have known that being a priest outside of God's official and holy temple is wrong, yet he does it anyway. He wasn't supposed to be a priest for an individual, but for a nation. The nation of Israel. However, the Levite goes about fulfilling his wants the wrong way, and Micah, with his new hire, convinces himself that the Lord will now let him prosper because he has a Levite as a priest. Micah's insecurity of his previous priest is clear. Though he has his own shrine, the idols, and the syncretistic divination tools, he knew that having his own son as a priest wasn't as good as having an actual Levite be a priest, his priest. Levites are God's chosen people to be priests after all. But again, we see the irony of Micah knowing God's law, but picking and choosing which laws of God he wanted to follow, patting himself on the back for following God's law in a twisted way. Instead of relying on a guaranteed design for worship by God, he relies again on his man-made religion, convincing himself he's doing right by God. 
In the meantime, Micah, along with the Levite, are almost oblivious to the fact that they're trying to manipulate God. They're picking and choosing what they want to follow instead of following what was right. So in what ways are we trying to convince ourselves that we're following God? How are we twisting God's good desires for us and distorting them to make them more palpable to our earthly tastes and to our new religions? Well, one, many times we want the good things that God offers, right? And I mean, eternal life, salvation, heaven, material and spiritual blessings, all of those are good things, but we don't want God, the one who offers them all to us. In other words, we want God's things, but we don't want God himself. We drink too much, allowing it to cloud our good judgment. We allow our anger to build up to the point where we seek revenge when we're cut off on the freeway, so we curse and we tailgate that car. We live promiscuous lives, looking at things you shouldn't look at, doing that which you should not be doing. All of these under the guise of being a good Christian on Sundays and, and at small groups, convincing ourselves that as long as I go to church on Sunday morning and small groups during the week, it's okay. It's okay if I do these other things. Not necessarily saying them out loud, but implicitly, implicitly living it out. So again, church, this is a question we must all ask. How am I worshiping my own man-made gods? How am I worshiping Jesus in the wrong ways? The root of all our wants, our twisted idols and misplaced desires all stem from one place, the heart. We convince ourselves that what we want deep down inside is what God wants for us. But what truly is deep down inside of us is our own wants, our own desires, our own preferences, our own sin that betrays and misleads us. And I would actually argue that more often than not, it is our hearts that leads ourselves astray and not Satan. So what happens now? Now that we've seen how we blind ourselves with our misplaced desires, how does God treat our man-made religions? What's he gonna do about it? If God is just, which we know he is, how should he handle our injustice towards him? What becomes of us all in the end? And that brings us to our last point. If you're following along in the handout, God always has the final word. God always has the final word. And that is all of chapter 18, verses 1 through 31. And sadly, we don't have the time to, three, to read through and cover all of chapter 18 in its entirety today. I was actually really excited and hoping that, to go through all of it, but we simply just don't have enough time. And I want to be respectful of your time. So if you guys want to talk about it after and nerd out and geek about it, I'd love to, please. Um, but <laughs> um, there's just so much that adds to the story in this chapter, but we can only do a brief flyover focusing in on Micah. So if you have any questions, again, I'd love to talk about it afterward, or you can email me, or we can talk about it somehow. Uh, so just to succinctly summarize chapter 18, we finally see Micah's fate come to a close. 
The people of Dan, another tribe of Israel, marches in, spies out Micah's land, steals all of his images, divination tools, household gods, and priests, angering him and leaving Micah in the dust, then wrongfully taking over a city that wasn't supposed to be theirs in Laish, then murders all of its inhabitants. In the end, God judges Micah, sparing him his life, but taking away all of his man-made religion. If God judged Micah, and we are like Micah, being honest with ourselves right now, how could we all not be judged too? We're all broken people. We all have our own man-made idols and religions and have chosen to worship God in the wrong way by misplacing our priorities of who or what we should be centrally building our lives upon. So God, in his great foresight, knew we couldn't live the perfect God-centered, worshipful lives we are called to. So he prepared a way for us that by giving up his only son, Jesus, to live the perfect life we were supposed to live and him dying the death that we rightfully deserve to die, Jesus paved the way to our redemption, him willingly and lovingly allowing us to identify with him in his resurrection from the dead. So now it's because of Jesus, not by any work of our own, that God sees us as he sees his own son. We no longer need to be afraid of an impending judgment because of the beautiful grace that God offers us in the gospel. You know, there's a a tendency that we have when reading the Bible to identify whatever is good and that passage or or seen as model behavior and hold it up as an example for us to do. You know, like, hey, this is good. Let's do this thing. Um, But as we've read this morning, this Story is clearly an example of what not to do. There's nothing commendable here. And that's partly the point. Even still, there are two simple applications that we can walk away with today. Just two very simple ones, just one word each. And number one is repent. Believer and unbeliever alike, please ask the Lord for forgiveness for your personal man-made religions. Ask him to change and transform your hearts to look like his own. And two, it's hope. Hope knowing that salvation is assured by faith in Jesus Christ. Not by our own works, for if they were, we would fail. Our hope is grounded in Jesus' works, which are perfect and good. So this is the beauty of the gospel. This this is the beauty. That the more we realize and see the man-made gods in our lives, the deeper we know God's grace goes. That the greater we understand our sin, ever greater, more so can we celebrate in awe and joy over God's grace that is greater than our sin. And would we not seek manufactured religion, but God's way, for he is our only hope. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, 
Lord, we confess we are broken people before a perfect and holy God. Lord, you are just. And out of your character, you command justice in the unjust. And so many of us right now are feeling the weight and burden of our sin, Lord. And the intent is not just is not to make us feel bad, Lord, but we are thankful, Lord, that your word convic- convicts us and speaks to us clearly, Lord, even in the pangs of our pain. But Lord, we can turn to you, understanding, knowing, Lord, that you offer grace freely to us through your son, Jesus Christ, dying on the cross and rising from the dead and therefore allowing us to join together with him how you see us now, not as us broken people, but as us, those saved by Jesus in the lens of his crucifixion. God, if there are unconfessed sins in our hearts now, if there are things that we have been hiding, if there are things that we know that we are dealing with daily, in and out, or just things that just might come up every once in a while, Lord, please, Help us to lay all of those before you now. You know each and every single one of them already. So Lord, please give us the freedom to offer those things up to you now. God, that we would not be afraid, but trust in you. God, because your work is secure. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.